Hey friends, I hope you're ready for a really exciting episode of Just the Zoo of Us. This week I've got a wonderful ecologist here to talk about puddles, ponds, and the life that thrives inside of them. He's got some really interesting stories to share about raising dragons, a mysterious entomological cold case, and his very own supervillain origin story. Stick around afterwards for announcements, plugs, and a sneak peek at next week's episode. Without further ado, Just the Zoo of Us presents Back Swimmers with Gavin Campbell. This is Ellen Weatherford. I'm here with Just the Zoo of Us. This is your favorite animal review podcast. I have a new friend for y'all to meet this week. I have Gavin Campbell. Say hi, Gavin. Hi, everyone. How are you? Well, you can't respond. Hi, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I can respond. I'm doing great. That's awesome. (laughs) I'm really excited to talk to you and talk about a very fascinating and very timely animal today. Before we talk about our cool animal, let's talk about our cool person. So tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are, like studying uh, these pond ecosystems. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, So growing up, I've always been someone that's interested in bugs, insects overall. I would collect some bees, some flies, some wasps when I was growing up. I learned that bees were fed royal honey to become queen bees. I saw that um, royal honey was made up of honey, spit, and some other chemicals. So what I did was use honey, sugar actually, and use my spit and fed it to some actual adult bees. And I was surprised that they did not turn into queen bees. So, like, those are some things that I had questions about. Like, I've always queried things when it comes to the biology of particularly insects. And I'd experiment, and sometimes they would work, sometimes they wouldn't. Most of the times they wouldn't, because I didn't have a full understanding. So I knew that I always wanted to go into biology. So in high school, I did those courses. And then afterwards, I'd go into an associate's degree in environmental sciences, and then a bachelor's degree in uh, environmental biology. And in my final year, that's when I got introduced to the incredibly awesome world of aquatic insects. So ever since then, I've just been really enthralled with them. And when I started my master's, it was particularly focused on caves at first. But then I saw this pond fill up with water, like randomly one day. So it was raining. And I saw birds in there. So I was wondering why are there birds in this random puddle of water? So I went home and I looked up why there would be birds there. And I saw that that's a whole range of ecosystems. Like you have temporary water habitats that organisms are adapted to. So that's what I did. The same week, I went and started collecting samples, even though I already had a project that I was focusing on. That became my main project over time. And it's been almost five years now on, on that project. And it's been so awesome, so cool. I'm still having questions. I'm so super fascinated with it. I'm a bit uh, overworked. <laughs> with all pieces stuff but it's still something that i'm really really interested in and i've kind of extended so when it comes to temporary waters there's the aquatic side of things but there's also the terrestrial side of things which many people forget so i've been collecting both sets of organisms both aquatic and terrestrial and from that i've gone into the terrestrials even more now so Every insect is like just a friend to me. I'm so ready to take pictures. I have <laughs> in my thesis as well too. I just finished processing some samples. I have 103 specimens that I have photographed and I've included. And I did that particularly because a lot of Caribbean fauna aren't really photographed, aren't really out there. So I wanted to make sure that if anybody had any questions, wanted to see what's out there, they can look through the thesis and see, oh yeah, I've seen this. This is something that can be in the Caribbean, something that 
has been recorded before. And also it could give some help with identification because that's that's another challenge as well. Too. Wow, that's really interesting. And you're right. We don't give a lot of thought to these. I like that they're called temporary aquatic yeah. ecosystems because like to me that's like a puddle you yeah. know like you don't put a lot of thought into a puddle but that's essentially what it is you know it's just a temporary pond what is a puddle but a temporary pond <laughs> that is true <laughs> i love that <laughs> at what point does like a body of water become big enough to be considered like is there a threshold between puddle and pond uh, there is no defined threshold people do have their different stipulations but it depends on the person really so you can define a puddle normally dries out say less than a week and then a pool is like the next level up like a week to maybe a month but really it, it varies different people call different things different things depending on their conditions i've studied some coastal ecosystems as well too some coastal puddles and they've been like no deeper than my ankle but they've still had hundreds of specimens in them wow. and they were saline as well too and i'm like this is amazing like how have i never <laughs> known about this before why is this incredibly awesome fact not a common thing I know it's, you know, puddles just seem like, oh yeah, jump in and give it a little splash. Mm, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then you never think about it again, you know? How does the transient nature, I suppose, of these puddles and pools that are there for a week and then they're gone, what kind of effect does that have on like the little animals that make themselves comfy in these little temporary aquatic environments? So when it comes to temporary aquatic environments, I wouldn't say they know, but they are aware of the fact that they dry out. So there are certain fauna that are specifically adapted to being in temporary waters. So for Jamaica, at least, there's a rainy season and a dry season. And the late rainy season is when my pond is most active. So there are particular fauna that will come only within that rainy season. They'll be triggered by rain, depending on the amount of rain and the frequency. They'll be triggered to go and find somewhere new to lay their eggs to get more food. But there are some specifically that are kind of resident in the habitat that as soon as it rains, they immediately start growing. So the number one organism that I have in, within my pond that does that is called um, Eulimnadia insularis. It's a really, really rare crustacean call a branchiopod overall so whenever it rains they have thousands of eggs in the pond they're always in the soil they can survive being frozen i found out wow. um, at minus 20 for four months straight and like, when i put them back in water they hatch out and they're totally fine oh unbothered <laughs> unbothered i've been monitoring temperature in the area and it's gone up to like it was at one point but it was like 70 degrees so they will survive extreme heat and extreme freezing so that's super cool but when they do get some indication of water they start growing immediately and then they can have their life cycle completed within six to seven days and if it dries out of that that's fine but if when it is inundated for a longer period of time then the other eggs that did not hatch out those ones can keep the population good so it's like they're adapted to being dried out regularly and they survive everything else that i've ever found just flies in. So they're, they're somewhere else in the, the network of existence and they fly in, particularly to exploit the new resources that are available when the pond gets flooded because when the pond gets flooded, there are new tertial insects that drown. So some of them feed on those and there are mosquitoes and other flies that lay their eggs in them. So the predators and stuff will come and feed on those ones as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. When you were describing to me the little crustacean that can be dried out and then it grows when it starts to get rainy, you know what that reminded me of? 
when you were a kid, did you ever have, um, it's like a little sponge thing and it starts off really, really little. And then you put it in a cup of water and it expands and it becomes like a little spongy dinosaur toy. I remember seeing that, but I don't think I ever had one. That's what it reminds me of. It's like they, they come in a little tiny capsule that's just like this. And then you drop it in the water and then boom, you've got a little sponge <laughs> dinosaur. That's yeah, what it reminds me pretty of. Pretty much. <laughs> and then you mentioned earlier that like birds were coming in to, yes. to join in on this temporary aquatic party too. Yes, they were the indicator for me to go and start. So I think the birds were showing me the way. <laughs> birds, a lot of times, I think for a lot of people can be that little charismatic, like, hey, get your attention over here. Yes, absolutely. Like, I love them for that. I would imagine that the birds, you know, they get there, they're like, ooh, puddle? That's a, just like a little lunch buffet for me, right? Like, yeah. that's a whole bunch of little food items that just popped up for them. Yep, that's absolutely true. Uh, so within my pond specifically, there have been severely large populations of things that they can eat. So uh, I remember within one of my, well, it's not one sample, but throughout my entire thesis, Mosquitoes were the most numerous organisms, 16,000 plus, and that was only just a sample of the ones that were there within the pond. So the birds definitely had a lot to eat, so they're well fed. Happy, thriving. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Before we really like zoom in on the back swimmer, when you're looking at one of these like temporary ponds, what types of animals other than mosquitoes, of course, in these little crustaceans that you mentioned, like what kind of animals do you think would be like typical of what you would see in one of these temporary ponds like what would you expect to see there set the scene i guess for people that aren't familiar with this ecosystem yeah no problem so within temporary ponds there are different levels i've, I've studied the the protists in the the ponds but it's not very diverse and i don't many people would know much about protists but um when it comes to the insects plus um vertebrate fauna the insects are largely hemipteran so there have been so many different species there are back swimmers pond skaters i forget the common names for the other groups but there's also um Mesovelidae, the different species of them within those groups. And then there are also the beetles. There are a lot of beetles that come. I found about six aquatic beetles that were able to fly in each time. And they had different biologies as well. So there would be one that would come and sustain the adult form. Then there's one that would come, lay eggs, and those eggs would immediately start growing and feeding on everything. There are also odonates, so dragonflies and damselflies. There are some organisms that, as adults, they come and visit the pond, but they don't lay any eggs or their eggs don't survive in the pond. So as they get eaten out or there's not enough material for them. So odonates are one of those. Dragonflies have been quite numerous and hefty. Like they're the biggest, one of the biggest organisms in the pond. So those are the, the main organisms that are found within the pond. Dragonflies, true bugs, and beetles. Dragonflies are kind of, they're like the final boss of the pond. Yes, they eat anything. <laughs> they even eat those branchiopods that I mentioned about. Dragonflies are so People don't give them enough credit for how impressive they are. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have loved dragons and dragonflies and everything with the word dragon in it for a long time. <laughs> so I, I really love them. I, I've, been, I've done some projects on them. I love working with them. I love seeing them. They're so gorgeous. Okay, small tidbit. Uh, back in 2019, which is apparently two years ago now. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're kidding. <laughs> yeah. So back in 2019, I had collected some of, some of dragonflies, some of their nymphs, and... I got really interested in them eating um, mosquitoes. So I was just going around collecting them and I was like, huh, you know what? I'll feed you some mosquitoes and see how many you can eat in a day just to, to assess your mosquito control potential, right? So I did that and I was able to rear um, an individual all the way to adulthood. So from the very, very tiny nymph 
to an adult and it just felt so rewarding. Like I had a, a child that grew up and I had to care of and everything, which is really awesome. So I got to see them eat. And after um, she came out as an adult, she came on my finger and it was just oh. so beautiful. Did you feel like Daenerys in that moment yes. with your dragon? <laughs> Father of dragons. <laughs> That would feel that would make me feel so powerful. Yes. <laughs> it was it was an awesome moment and I'm looking forward to many more later on. So when it comes to the the notes connected, I can talk more in depth because the, the work that I did with the dragonflies led up to that one. But it was basically getting mosquitoes and feeding them and seeing seeing how many they would eat in a day and watching their hunting strategies. There are actually two species that I had and one of them was Eritha de Black's Umbrata. I really am terrible with common names. But um, it's a little bit like a, a scoop mouth dragonfly. Their, their strategy is basically sit and wait until something comes around. There are the, the hawkers, which is Anax Junius. I think people might know that one. So that one would go around and hunt. Like if it sees something moving, it will chase it down and eat it. It is savage. That's the dragon dragon. That's the dragon the one that's dragon. that's out circling the sky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's really cool. And I feel like I could talk to you about dragonflies for a thousand years, yes. but <laughs> I would like to zoom in a little bit on our animal for today, um, which is an animal that you are familiar with and have worked with and have studied. This yes. is a back swimmer. Can you introduce us? What is a back swimmer, please? So a back swimmer is an entire family in the, the hematurans or an aquatic family. They are called officially the notonectids or notonectidae. They are back swimmers because they swim with their dorsal surfaces down. So their backs are down on the water. And they're kind of angled about 70 degrees, 60 degrees in the water. So they have their abdomen to the surface of the water. And their heads would be down. Their backs would be kind of diagonal with the, with the substrate. Sure. They do that because they breathe air. So they use their... They have some hairs on the sides of them that they use to trap air. So they can just go to the surface, breathe some air, and then dive back into the water whenever they see any predators or whenever they want to catch any food. And they're really fast. So really? trying to catch them with the hand is not a thing. You have to catch them with the net and you have to be fast about it because if they detect you, they will move from the surface and just dart immediately down and try to hide. So they're, they can be difficult in the fields to catch, but when they're in a lab setting, they're not as difficult. But that depends on the population, which I'll talk a bit more about later. Yeah, for sure. So if you're looking at a pond and you are trying to spot a back swimmer, for people that aren't familiar with them at all, what do they look like generally? Uh, they're kind of like an elongated oval and they have these very long oar arms that stick out. So that's one mm. of the ways you can really easily identify them. So they're different species. Um, the smaller adults are about maybe a millimeter or so, millimeter to two millimeters. But the larger ones can be up to about a centimeter. So they're not huge, huge. Uh, when it comes to spotting them, you you won't see them when they're just, well, you might see them when they're just positioned. But a lot of times you'll see them when they move off. So if you are walking through or if they don't notice you, then you'll see them quickly dart through the water. And then that way you can just kind of follow them and see where they are. And, and they're quick, like zooming around. All, are they like yeah. close to the surface? Yeah, so they're usually close to the surface when they're resting. And then if they're hunting, they'll be further down. But they really regularly come back to the surface. So. You wait a few minutes or a few seconds, actually. They should come back up. Are these back swimmers, would you only find them in these, like, Jamaican ponds? Or can you find them elsewhere? They're everywhere. So different species are everywhere around the world. Um, Jamaica has about seven species. We have two main genera, Notonecta and Buenoa. And Buenoa is the one that is most species. Notonecta, there's only one species found. 
But in the U.S., there are different species of Notonecta as well. And around the world, there are different species of Notonecta and other genera as well. Too. So there, if you have a body of water that is stagnant at some point, then you'll most likely find them. So have a look, especially ponds. Yeah, for sure. We have a retention pond They're there. literally behind our house in our backyard. I'm going to go look for some. <laughs> yeah, if it's open, though. Like, if it's closed off, they won't be able to access it. But if it's open, they'll be there. Oh, man, that's really cool. And we've got all sorts of critters out there that are probably gobbling them right up. <laughs> yep. Even themselves, like they are predators, but they are also cannibalistic sometimes. Really? Yeah. I feel I find that a lot of different organisms are. Maybe that's like not as taboo for non-human animals. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's actually one of the adaptations of temperate waters. Organisms become cannibalistic because when they are cannibalistic, they can eat more food and then grow faster. And then if the pond is drying out then they can become adults and they don't need to rely on the aquatic phase anymore. Even uh, frogs do it. Don't be too picky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but even within that, though, like there have been some documentations of them picking species that are not within their same bloodline. So they'll mm-hmm. eat other members of the species, but not their cousins or their brothers and sisters, but just other individuals. Mm, they have just a smidge of loyalty. Yeah. <laughs> If this is your first time listening to this podcast, what we do is we review animals by rating them out of 10 in three different categories. And our first category that we rate animals on is effectiveness. So this is physical adaptations the animal has, things built into its body that let it do a good job of, you mentioned they're predatory, so maybe things that help them catch their prey, things that help them not become prey themselves. What would you give the back swimmer out of 10 for effectiveness? For effectiveness, I'd give it uh, a seven. Okay. But in groups, I'd give it an eight because, Mm. so based on the work that I was doing, there would be a really great efficiency of them killing mosquitoes. So I was feeding them mosquitoes overall, and they'd be able to talk them down to about 60 to 70% of the time, or 60% of the population overall. But when they're working together, they actually knock down more, which is something that I, I found quite interesting. So they're better working as peers. They're also really good at dispersing. So whenever the pond fills up uh, after some rain, they're going to be there within the first three days. They're going to make use of whatever resources are there. And they're going to keep coming throughout the time period. And if ever the pond dries out, they can fly back to wherever they came from. So they're pretty adapted at making sure that they can find food and survive. Oh, so they can swim and fly. Yeah, they can swim and fly. I have seen some of them crawl, but not that great. (laughs) Okay, so it's it's kind of one or the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. You mentioned that they have, or is it their legs? Like the yeah. legs that are like sticking out along the side of their body like oars? Yeah, they do. So their legs are sticking out at the sides like giant oars. They may use them to angle themselves, but it's mostly for propulsion through the water. That makes sense. They gotta scoot, scoot along. <laughs> yeah. So what is with the, I know you said that the angle of the body is so that they can poke their little butt out to breathe the air that they need to yeah. breathe. Is there any sort of benefit to them being flipped over on their back like that? Like, what's that all about? So I've never looked at it for specifically the, the notonectids, but I know that when it comes to the coloration of certain organisms, depending on different predators and also different prey items, it may be beneficial to have your dorsal surface down and your ventral surface up. So it would be kind of like, depending on the environment where you're looking from, the surfaces would not would blend in, so you wouldn't really detect them as well. Mm, okay. Camouflage thing. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting how they figured that out. You just got to flip your body over and there you yeah, go. <laughs> and, yeah, and things don't find you and you're good. Does that seem to help them not be targeted by like visual predators like dragonflies? 
I feel like their speed is their better um, advantage when it comes to that. A lot of organisms aren't really that super great when it comes to detecting things unless they're they're moving. So they'll see them moving, but they won't really see them um, when they're stationary. But when they see them moving, it's kind of already too late because they're really fast. You can get a nymph, like if one of the nymphs are available, they're a bit slower, so they could get one of those ones. But the adults Mm. are super fast. How are they hunting for their food? I, I know that, you know, we talked about how they're going for like mosquito larva, maybe something that might be a little bit of an easy catch. Are they typically only going for those like slow moving stuff or will they actually like hunt? So I've seen them go for um, mostly slow moving stuff. They'll detect uh, the organisms that are moving around them. And if they see some movement, they'll try to, to catch it. But their efficiency isn't that great. So when it comes to clumsier things, they're better at catching those ones. And when they're higher densities, they're better at catching them as well, too. So one thing I also noted when doing my studies was that even if they're going for uh, one particular organism, if they don't catch that organism and they see something else moving because of their movement, then they'll go and catch that organism. Oh, okay. So like if they're hunting something, they don't necessarily have that like tunnel vision, right? So it's like, nah. oh, well, this looks easier. I'll switch over to this one instead. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Especially when there are other eggs. <laughs> Exactly. There's so many. <laughs> go, yeah. get, go get an easier one. <laughs> yeah. So I have this like little theory that, um, as I mentioned before, um, when they're in pairs, they get more. So I'm thinking that might be the situation. So when one of them would disturb the, the mosquitoes, the other one would be um, just sitting there just waiting for the disturbed one to pass. So they'd mm. be able to, whenever they're hunting, they disturb and then make food more available for the other one. So they kind of <gasps> work together to oh. hunt them down. That is a great transition into the next category we rate animals on that I feel like this one might do pretty well in yeah. is ingenuity. So behavioral adaptations that the animal is using to kind of solve problems it might be facing. What do you give the back swimmer for ingenuity? So I give the back swimmer an A for ingenuity. They sound clever based I know, on what right? you said. <laughs> I, I, I'm not 100% sure if they're doing it on purpose or if it's just something that happens. But even, even if it's something that does happen, they're able to make notes and make use of these resources at farming happenstance. So they're quite adaptable and they're quite ingenious. So yeah, I would give them an 8 for that. I wouldn't give them the, the full 10 <laughs> because sometimes when the pond dries out, I still see them there. So even though they can fly, the adults can fly, they stay there. I'm not sure if it's something that happened to them, but... They don't leave. Maybe they just didn't get the memo. Yeah, maybe they're just homesick and just want to stay there. They're like, this is fine, actually. <laughs> this is fine, yeah. I've already laid my eggs. This is enough. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've fulfilled my life duty. I'll just yep. I'll chill here for now. <laughs> yep, and they do. It's sometimes difficult for me to think about, like, what could be the factors that are motivating this bug to do the thing that it's doing? Yeah, I, I completely get you. So when it comes to figuring that out, that's what we are here for. But it still can be so difficult to, to ascertain because there are so many different factors that could be affecting one particular behavior. And you really have to account for several of those and test specifically for that particular behavior. So even when it comes to um, rainfall, one of the things that I've been trying to do is kind of give a threshold for when the, the pond will be there. So is it that they come to the pond whenever there's a heavy rain shower? expecting the pond to be there mm. or do they just fly around and be like oh cool there's a pond let me fly into it so i, I did some collections and <laughs> based on um the collections that i did found i never found any aquatic insects or semi-aquatic insects separate from the pond being there so the pond had to be there first so it's not that they know that oh yeah it's gonna be here let me just you know go to this particular spot they seem to just fly around and then find water 
Sure. Yeah. Any pond will do. They're not picky. Yeah. They're not specific. <laughs> it doesn't have to be my pond. It has to be a pond. I was thinking they'd be like, there'd be like a particular population that comes back. This is like mm-hmm. their, their summer home or whatever. But I guess I just fly whatever. That probably benefits them like as things change and especially as like humans change landscapes. Like sure. you might be expecting a pond to be there and then you come back and it's now a parking lot, you know, yeah. like that might help them in the long yeah. run as humans are changing things around. That is true. And my, my pond is like a very, I don't say very urban, but it's like a peri-urban pond. There are nearby um, pools and different reservoirs around. So they have their permanent populations. But the, the pond that they come to, the one that I study, it's only been six years that has actually existed. So it was created as a result of human activity. So I guess they wouldn't have had an evolutionary background to come back to that particular space. And that's funny because we talked about other animals before that have the opposite problem where they go to the same place over and over again, expecting the resources to be there. Yeah. And that ends up causing a problem for them when they show up and the resources have been altered in some way. Yeah, but I guess not not these ones. They're like, oh, we're not loyal to any pond. Any pond will do. (laughs) A rolling stone gathers no moss. They're fine. (laughs) So when you have had these back swimmers in the lab with you, have you ever like noticed them doing anything really funky that you didn't expect them to do? Yeah. So one of the things was I would see them try to eat each other. Like there would be enough food in the, in the, in the containers that I had them in, but they would still try be trying to eat each other. But the other one wouldn't leave. Really? Like the other one wouldn't move. So they do have a poison that they do um, whenever they feed. They have a poison that they inject into their prey so they're slightly paralyzed or stunned a little bit. So that may be like one of the things that is uh, in effect there. But like whenever I see them do that, I'm like, no, get off. And then separate <laughs> them. Like they weren't mating or anything, but they would just sometimes be trying to eat each other, which is strange. Like I do know that they have predatory or cannibalistic uh, intents. But that's usually only when food is limited. If there's enough food, they're fine. So there have been some strange things that I did see throughout their development. So the project, let me introduce it fully. So the project overall was trying to get to an understanding of the life cycle of the notonectid to see how long they take to go from different developmental stages and also to see how many mosquitoes they can eat at those different developmental stages. So I had that tracking and there was a second aspect that was the mosquito um, control aspect. So even though like the further development, they were feeding and they were controlling mosquitoes, but there was a separate aspect that I did based on different densities of mosquitoes to see how many they could eat at different densities. So if it's if that if it is that they're density limited or if there's a saturation point of feeding. So yes, there is a saturation point, as most things that feed do have. Um, so that was a project overall, seeing tracking the development of that species, seeing how many how many mosquitoes they eat throughout development. So there would be different instances of like throughout their development where as soon as they come into their next developmental stage, they die. So some of them unfortunately do pass like as soon as they move. Some of them get trapped in um, in their casing, which is unfortunate. Um, but some of them just don't seem to be really well adapted to swimming sometimes. And I've read the literature on that particular aspect. There's not much actually, like not many people have studied the life history of them throughout time so that's one of the really cool aspects of that that work that i'm doing so yeah for that (laughs) the pioneer (laughs) yes a pioneer in the field so in the few instances of someone doing some developmental work 
they have also noted that they're not very successful, at least in the lab. So they'll lay hundreds of eggs, but only maybe about one or two percent would actually make it to adulthood. So I'm not sure, or we're not sure if it's something that happens in the natural environment as well too, but in the lab, nah, it's not it's not very profitable for them to stay. Oh, I wonder what it is that's bothering them so much. And also, like, so when I started, I had this one population on the university campus where I was working, where the pond is, that I was working with. And someone somewhere else brought me some other individuals from a different parish that was like a little bit further away. And I, I fed them because why not, you know? So I fed them and I watched them develop and they had a much higher success rate. So there were only about seven individuals, but of those seven, six of them made it to adulthood. And I was wondering, why is it that those ones didn't make it, but these ones from this other area did make it? So I'm thinking that there is something within the environment that allows them to become more bolstered so that whatever does hatch, those ones are better at surviving. So one interesting thing, though, so let's call them population A and population B. Okay. So population A is the one here on the campus that I'm working with, that I was working with originally. Population B is the one from the other location. So I bred population B and they produced fertile eggs, but they gave the same kind of result when it came to hatching out. So even though normally um, in population B, when I got those at very, very small limbs, they were able to go to adulthood. When population B was bred, they had a really high death rate as well. Mm, population B is not doing so hot. It's both of them, actually. So depend, it, I think it's, it might be the environment. It's in like the laboratory environment. There's something that we're not getting that's missing that causes them to either be uh, less adapted to surviving to adulthood or there's mm. something that benefits them in their natural environment to make them more bolstered and surviving. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's still something that I want to look into because nothing changed. Like, you're still being fed the same thing. You're in the same water. Right. Why are you dying? No, but you were fine earlier, you know? It's weird. That's such a mystery. It almost kind of makes you think about, like, how even though they might not seem it to us, the population of insects or anything really can be a lot more fragile than they look to us, right? Like we don't even know what it is that's causing them to die off at these huge numbers, but it's happening and it's having a really bad effect on their population. So like it makes you kind of, for me at least, it makes me kind of think about like there could be factors that we have no idea that are really causing these like big die offs of insects and bugs and things that are really important to our ecosystems. Absolutely. Like that's that's definitely true. So whenever seeing that we don't know how to perfectly rear them in the lab, the one thing I always advocate for is leaving environments alone. Like you can create ponds and everything, let them be, but do not try to rear them in the lab to do any particular thing. They have something in the environment that they are adapted to, something that keeps them going. So let that be until we can figure that out and replicate it. Like let there be temperate water and also perennial water environment so they can keep doing this. Sure. Yeah, because we clearly aren't doing it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we still have a lot to learn. What an interesting little mysterious critter that has some sort of mystery need. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's also a very exciting opportunity for knowledge, right? Like a new thing to learn. Yes, absolutely. And there's like, I was surprised to see that not much work had been done on them because they're very ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And the few studies that did some developmental work, that seems to be like 
that's it. No one has gone and looked into other regions or other environments that could maybe have different factors or results. Wow. I'd be really interested to see like how more work and more research into this pans out. Because yeah. now, now I feel like now you've kind of hooked me into this mystery. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like, it feels like a true crime story now that now I'm like, well, geez, now I got to stay tuned. This is a cold case. <laughs> yes. Stay tuned. I'll definitely keep you updated. Yeah. Wow. That is absolutely wild. There's so much more uh, suspense than I expected in the back swimmer. <laughs> And when you were talking about how you had the ones in the lab where the one was like cannibalizing the other and the other one wasn't really doing too much about it, it made yeah. me think that like you might feel like a parent who has to separate the two siblings because they're yeah, when they're on fighting. Each other too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. All right, leave your brother alone. Stop eating him, please. <laughs> that one is just insane. Stop eating your brother. <laughs> please, for once, just behave. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. There was like some interesting factors as well too. So population A was is okay at hunting. The population B was better. Even when they were nymphs, they would like team up and there would be when they just hatch out, they're really, really tiny. So the fact that they could take down mosquito larvae that were like larger than them was oh. impressive. There would be some of them that would be about the mosquito larvae would be about three times their length, but they would still be feeding on it and just dragging it around. And it was impressive to see because they're so tiny, but the mosquitoes <laughs> are so big in relation. And they would even pair up at times. I have a really good picture of um, two very, very small nymphs eating a mosquito larva. And like one is at one end, one is at the other end. So they're kind of just teaming up to, to take it down. Whoa. Yeah. That's very impressive. I love to see teamwork among bugs because you don't, I feel like you don't see that a lot. That's very true. Would you call them like social bugs where they like prefer to stay in groups together or do they just kind of like be okay with each other? They're more so to be okay with each other. So when they are, when they are dispersing, they don't really come in a big group. So mm-hmm. not Notonecta specifically, but there was another Notonecta that I had. Um, one of these species of Vanoa that would, I would say, would be more social. So they would always be found in groups. They'd always like swimming with each other. Like whenever they're in the pond, there wouldn't be a separation. There would be a focus of all of them within a, one particular location. So they're more social. And Nota Necta itself would pretty much be solitary. Like it'd be just swimming around wherever parts of the pond it can, trying to find food. They wouldn't be working together. So it depends um, on the species and their behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. Do they care for their babies at all? Or are they just kind of those bugs that just like lay the eggs and, and dip? Like they're like, that's enough for me. Goodbye. Best of luck. <laughs> yeah. So they are the do not give a care at all about their, their young. They'll lay their eggs and just disappear. My first interaction with um, one of them was in, I forget the year, honestly, but I collected an, an adult and I just kept her around to see, you know, to observe and everything. And I was feeding her mosquitoes as well, too. But then I would see these little white things start popping up. I was like, oh, what are these? They're eggs. Oh, my gosh. You're laying eggs, <laughs> which is awesome. So I was really excited to see her laying eggs and just giving me new offspring to, to see and observe. So she would lay the eggs and she would lay about eight or so each day. And then she would die. So I would still be feeding her monkey doll and everything. But still, after laying all her eggs, she just passed out. So that is one of the things with, with um, that particular group, at least. So once they start um, producing their eggs, almost they're finished producing their eggs, they go. Their job is done, so they're not really around much to take care of their young. But they're pretty okay on their own to survive as nymphs growing up, so they're not too bad. But it was so amazing. Like, 
seeing those really really tiny organisms just pop out of those like super cute tiny shells i even have obviously i have to call up a bunch of pictures so i have pictures mm-hmm. of the eggs different um different developmental stages within the egg itself too so you could see like a little red eye spot forming you could see wow. the legs forming and everything it was amazing so that does sound really cool <laughs> yeah and then to see them come out and swim around i even i've even watched them come out while they're hatching like they're so they're so cute i would have cried <laughs> i didn't cry but i was really close it was so cute to see them trying so hard and then after like sometimes it'd be like 20 minutes of trying to get out they finally get out and they'll swim to the surface get some air and then come back down it's like it's just amazing to see them like you went through this entire process of development within the egg. I saw you develop. I saw different stages. And now you're swimming around and everything's just cool, you know? It's a big world for a little bug. I know. It was so <laughs> uh, so heartwarming. Would you describe the babies as cute? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a good opportunity to talk about our last category for the animals that we talk about on the show. This is aesthetics. This is just how nice this animal is to look at what do you give back swimmers for aesthetics so i would give them a 10 okay but i would take away one because on the very 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 last day of working with the hundreds of no connecteds i was handling one and one bit me on the (gasps) very last day with the very last individual (laughs) after working with hundreds for several months one bit me did it hurt it did sting for about maybe five minutes or so so yeah it did hurt but um It wasn't anything that's like excruciating pain. There have sure. been some documentations of other um, aquatic hemipterans that cause extreme pain, like the, the water bugs, the giant water bugs, the velocimetids. Sure. Those are the ones that have the big, huge jaws, right? Yeah, those are scary. Those are... Yeah, that tracks. No, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to get bit by that. <laughs> so whenever it comes to those ones, I, I make sure to steer clear of any mouth bark because I'm not about to get stung. Or bitten by those ones at all. No, thank you. Not at all. So no. I'd still give it a 10, though. Like a secret 10. <laughs> Just there's a petty point that got... Yeah. <laughs> that got a little bit. Especially the nymphs. So like the eggs. Adorable. Adorable. I give them like an 11. Can you see them with your eyes or do you have to look at them through a microscope? You can see them with your eyes. So you can see the little red spots developing. If you want more detail, you go with the microscope. But you can see the red spots developing and you can track them, track their developments. I even have like a little schedule. So like on day three, the eye spot develops and then day four, like the legs start developing and everything. Oh, that's adorable. That's like when I, I just had a baby. Um, and when I was pregnant, I was using this little app that like every like week yes. it would say like, right now, like the fetus has developed these uh, traits, yes. you know, so yeah. it's, I, I, I like that you also have that for your back swimmer babies. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And somebody has to put that amount of love and care and tenderness <laughs> into the babies. <laughs> yes, I'm there for it. I'm there for it. One oh. interesting thing that I did not mention um, is where the mosquitoes came from. So this might be a bit cringe for some people, but <laughs> it, it had to be done. So originally when I started with just, you know, randomly collecting mosquito larvae, it was doing that, just randomly collecting whenever there'd be mosquitoes around, I just collect them and then bring them home to feed the the, the notinectins and also the dragonfly nymphs at, at the time when I was doing those. But I saw that they kind of eat a lot. And in outside of the rainy season, there aren't many mosquitoes or not as high densities of mosquitoes as they would need. So I decided to start rearing mosquitoes. 
So there is an insector here that focuses on mosquito control and I got some equipment and I started wearing them. But at first I was doing the regular lab situation where you get um, donated blood and you'd have a particular machine that warms up the blood and you'd have something to put the blood in so they had access to. Mine didn't like that. Like the mosquitoes after about a month or so, they would not, like throughout the entire month, they would not feed. Like the starting population, there were about 100 individuals. At most, two of them would feed. And those would produce maybe about 50 eggs each. And that would not be enough for the whole study that I would need. (laughs) Nobby mosquitoes. (laughs) I know, right? They just want the original thing. Oh, Um, mm, it won't do for my (laughs) refined mosquito taste. (laughs) Uh, So one, the one thing that I had to think about was getting them a live source (laughs) of food. Um, So after much deliberation and many more weeks of trying to feed them with the, the apparatus. I decided, yeah, this apparatus isn't working out. They need the real deal. So I stuck my arm in there. So No, you didn't. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I have very cringy pictures wow. for anyone who wants to see as well, too. So in the initial part, it was about 100 individuals in the population. And I stuck my arm in there. It would hurt. And I had my arm in, my arm in there about maybe half an hour to have everybody feed if they wanted but after that they laid me a bunch of eggs which was awesome hatched those eggs out to give me some more adults but then at their peak the densities were around 2,000 mosquitoes in the cage so 30 minutes was not cutting it anymore thankfully most of them um, were able to feed within 5 minutes so after 5 minutes of bearing that pain I would be just like I'd be playing music really loudly so no one could no one hear me screaming and I'd sing along with the music as well too to kind of help with the pain and I'd have a timer just that's just like going down, like how oh, many minutes left? So after about five minutes after them feeding, like the initial worst part would be when they just land. So as soon as you stick your hand in there, they're there. Like they're immediately on there. They're 80s Egyptians, so you know they really, really love human blood. So that would be the most painful part when they just start biting. After a few minutes of them all having been settled on my arm they kind of die down. Whenever there are new ones, you can feel them individually. Um, but for the most part, when they're continuously feeding, they're okay. After five minutes, I would see that most of them were filled. Some of them would even fly off of my arm. So I just like shake my arm, get them all off, and then extract my arm. And then just kind of breathe a sigh of relief that it's done. Oh my god. And I do that <laughs> once a week. <laughs> once a week? Sometimes oh twice. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out. <laughs> that has got to be the ultimate sacrifice for science, right? Yeah. That is like the height of like, I'll do it for the knowledge, you know? Like, yeah. wow, that needs to be something that they warn people about that want to get into like Must entomology. Like, hey, <laughs> big heads up here. This is something you're going to have to consider as yeah. part of your future. Yeah. Like when I when I was just toying around with the idea, I didn't think too much of it. I was like, I'm not feeding myself to hundreds, thousands of mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. But then it needed it. Like it needed it for me to have good data because some of them could eat hundreds of mosquitoes per day. So I need to have hundreds of eggs available to hatch out for feeding them. So I had to I had to make the sacrifice. I had to do it. You get to say that you literally put your blood, sweat, and tears into <laughs> this work. Like yes. at the most literal possible. <laughs> 
definition. Absolutely. Like, and it's a, it is something that I do, do mention to some of my, some of the students and everything that I listen. Um, another interesting thing that I like to talk about when it comes to that is I have children. They literally have my blood and grandchildren and everything. So I consider myself science parent or an, an insect parent because they do have my blood technically. And overall, I think it was around 200,000 eggs that were hatched and 50,000 were documented, but many, many more were fed to the other ones were, that were going through development. So when it comes to development, because they didn't have that great of a success rate, I didn't single each of them out and then track them because they could just die at a random point. So I'd have like different batches of them and just feed them hundreds of larvae and whoever eats those, they'll be fine. When they do show some um, robustness in the later stages, I then single them out and then feed them um, individually. So there were a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of larvae, a lot of eggs that had to be hatched. They had to like time everything perfectly so they had the right stage whenever they were ready and everything. So it was like, it was a lot. It was a lot. But it was, it's really, really great data. It's like, it, it gives such amazing data. You can see like an exact trend, like a straight line for every single stage. It's like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have to say I am hearing what I'm hearing is some sort of Marvel superhero origin story. <laughs> That's like, I fed my super blood <laughs> to these thousands and thousands of mosquitoes that now have my blood in them. And now they're my army to do my bidding. Like I'm yes. hearing this is an origin story. <laughs> so I, I absolutely love cartoons. I love superheroes. I love superpowers and everything. And that absolutely crossed my mind. Like, I would have, so I'd make some jokes with friends if anybody ever, ever upset them. I'd just be like, yo, fam, we're coming. Our army <laughs> is coming for that person that upsets you because... <laughs> Me and my 200,000 mosquitoes. <laughs> yes. There is no human alive that could like, withstand that. You could kill a few hundred, sure, but there's still 200,000. What you, what you talking about? We, we got this. <laughs> You're like feeding them and listening to like the Avengers soundtrack, just getting hyped <laughs> up. Like, here we go, boys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what powers could I get from doing this, you know? And also, like, this might be a bit odd, but like, I relate more, or I find the, the villains of, of movies much more hilarious than the actual <laughs> heroes. So... Um, more narratively interesting yeah they're this is very interesting um i'm not sure if you know of kim possible oh yes yes okay I do. <laughs> awesome so dna me do you remember dna me um hold on let me look her up real quick she was the one that made um different combined different creatures okay i see her yes like there was a point in time when someone made a reference, they said that I was like the enemy because I would call them my kids, I'd call them my creatures, I'd like feed them my blood and everything. And I was like, am I a villain? Am I a cartoon villain? <laughs> because exactly the same things that she would do, I would be doing. Like I'd be like super taking care of them. I'd wake up just feeding them. I'd spend most of my day thinking about them, working with them, kind of a little bit obsessed-ish. But it would be so much like that, like different organisms for sure, but it would be pretty much the same behavior. I would, I would even like, I'd spend more time with them than I did with other human beings as well too. So it's just like, they were like my everything at that point. So I was like, yeah, the, yeah, I could become a villain. I could become like <laughs> one of those Marvel villains that becomes so hyper-focused on a particular organism. Mm. And then that becomes like, they, there's some mutation. They make like giant cockroaches or something. And then they create an army to take over the world. And that's you with your mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, Dean Amy deserved better. She deserved. Yeah, I know. 
justice. She did. <laughs> she deserved more airtime too. Do you feel like now <laughs> when you go out and you go like hiking or go for a walk or go out in nature, are you now at the point where you're like, I don't even bother with bug spray because this is nothing. You know, <laughs> like, is this just like not even enough mosquitoes to bother with the bug spray at this point? So when it comes to that situation, I don't necessarily use bug spray much because most of the time when I do go out is to collect bugs and I don't want to repel them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to things like ticks, I do make sure to, to spray particularly my ankles and everything because I, before like mosquitoes used to be my most detested organism. So that was actually part of the reason why I went into it. I was like, you guys have bothered me enough. I will find a way to support your demise. So the whole using insect, um, using, using aquatic insects to eat them was a part of the process, but I kind of secretly got attached to them uh, uh, throughout the process. You just needed to give uh, them a chance. <laughs> yeah. But no, though, ticks, ticks, I, no, ticks are not no. it. I, if I see a tick, I will immediately squash it. Like it is not, it's not getting anywhere near me. So <laughs> I do spray when it comes to those particular organisms, but mosquitoes, they're a bit more tolerable right now. I still have to make sure I remove anyone's from life <laughs> that, um, that may bite me because they're still uh, mosquito borne diseases overall. But most of the time, they're not as bothersome um, as they were before. Gosh, ungodly levels of just sheer. <laughs> determined will for science <laughs> yeah i think you get a medal for that you you've got to get some sort of trophy award something i feel like the data that i got from it was the reward because it just that's the most scientist so answer yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's like, the I'll... super villain answer <laughs> <laughs> like it was all worth it because the data is okay <laughs> All right. Well, we're coming up on time. So before we say goodbye for today, I would like to take you, I would like for you to take a quick minute to let our friends know where they can find you on social media, where we can follow you. What are you working on? Stuff like that. Things you want our friends listening to know. Okay. Awesome. So you can find me online. I'm always on Twitter when it comes to talking about insects. I even have some that I'm going to post shortly after this. So I have a few dozen hemipterans and hymenopterans that I want help with identifying. Identify. <laughs> so I'll be posting to Twitter to show those and also to get some help with that. So you can find me at Dragon Ecology on Twitter. And I like anything dragon. So a lot of my names will have dragon something in them. Um, I like dragonflies as well too. When it comes to what I'm doing right now, so I recently finished my thesis, which is yay, awesome. So, But I'm currently going through edits, so I've finished my work, but I still had to send it to my supervisors for them to edit. So I'm on the second supervisor's edits right now, just making sure that everything is fine. Edits are quite daunting, but still can be done, still will be done, still will have to be done. I've done the hardest part. This is the least, you know? So I'm currently working on edits and I'm just finished just finished processing the pictures for the identification. You would think that after doing that, there were some periods of time when I would work every single day for seven months because when it comes to feeding the, the nosonectives, I can't just be like, oh, you're fine for the weekend. They have to eat every single day. So I had to be there every day. Even on my birthday, I was <sighs> there feeding them for five hours. So you would think <laughs> that after that, I'd be like, oh, vacation for the next month or so but no i was like you know i like ants no let me look at ants (laughs) (laughs) so i have been getting more into collecting and identifying ants so the other day when i went to get groceries i was like you know what i'm gonna make this an ant collecting trip as well so i went out in um a little urban area to collect some ants and yes 
there were people that were looking at me weird. Yes, people came and asked what I was doing. But I got some really cool ants, so I don't really mind. There you go. So yeah, it was it has been so eye opening to learn more about them and to learn about some species that are not really commonly seen and are endemic to Jamaica. So I found this really cool one. Um, it's called Tophelotes jamaicansis, and it it kind of has like a shield head and like a long pyramided <gasps> body. Is it is it like a like a turtle ant? Is that what you're talking about? Like the one with the trapdoor head? Yes, it's exactly those. Oh, awesome! I love those. Yeah, so they're really cool. So I know, like when I was collecting the the ant specimens, I was incredibly surprised because I didn't expect to see that like, it was my second day collecting specimens officially, and I didn't ex- didn't expect to see them first on my second day and then second. Just right where they were because they were right outside my lab, and I was like, "What? You've been here this whole time?" <laughs> and it's like because because it's an endemic species, I would I would think that it's somewhere like deep in forests or something, which it may be. But I was very surprised to find it in a very urban area. Just a little pointer for another aspect of my research, or yeah, another aspect of my research. I was focusing on temporary waters, but also focusing on the terrestrial phase as well too, which not many people do talk about. And in the terrestrial phase, I was able to find. So many organisms, so many different species. There were over 300 different terrestrial species alone within the pond, and it was just incredible to see. Like the area that I was working in was about half an acre in size, and I was sampling every month for a whole year. And to see that there were 300 plus species within that area, within that small defined area, within an urban environment, it just blew my mind. Like there's yeah. so diverse it's it's incredible so urban areas rock urban areas do not discount them they have so many different species that are able to survive and even adapt specifically to those so i love those yeah and what could to us as humans look like just a puddle of water on the ground is really just like a sprawling metropolis like a thriving civilization of bugs and yeah and it's like I, i i love the tiny things so much like to know that within that small space, there are hundreds of species and thousands of individuals of these particular organisms. Like walking by, I'd be like, oh, bush, grass, yeah. nothing special. But looking deeply, you see this is full of life. And like, it's not just here. It's definitely going to be other places as well, too. So no matter how small an area might be, it's still an important habitat for so many different diverse species. So, yeah. I'm all for rewilding right now. Oh, yeah. Just get down there with your magnifying glass and look and yeah. see what like amazing <laughs> stuff you can find down there. It's not yes. boring. I promise. <laughs> at all. At all. And I even have pictures to attest. There's some of them that are just gorgeous. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and appreciation for ponds and for <laughs> underappreciated critters. We even got some mosquito love in there, which is like, that's a big ask a lot of times is to get a little <laughs> bit of love for mosquitoes. I feel like that that's is true. underrepresented entirely <laughs> in that there is none. You <laughs> no love for, for mosquitoes. But we got a little bit of love for mosquitoes in this episode, which is um, yes. a, a rare treat. true thank you so much for having me it has been a pleasure to talk about like all the work that i'm doing and to talk to you as well so it's just refreshing so i hope that some people out there listening are enthralled like they do like the information that they heard and that they leave with some hope yeah and some appreciation (laughs) yeah appreciation Well, thank you so much for joining. It has been delightful to meet you. Everybody listening, please go follow Gavin on Twitter and keep up with the amazing work that he's doing and get some more 
steady stream of just <laughs> amazing bug content and cartoons what more could you ask for <laughs> well we will catch you later thank you so much for joining us gavin yes thanks so much for having me ellen thanks bye bye I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. I hope you learned something new and it brought you maybe a little glimmer of sunshine, even the mosquito parts, hopefully. If you liked what you heard today, it would mean a lot to us if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you're listening. You can also connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and we even have a Discord server, so feel free to come hang out with us on there. I did promise a sneak peek at next week's episode, so here it is. Next week on Just the Zoo of Us, I'll be joined by a special guest who is a professional naturalist and zoologist with a passion for birds. He even has a podcast about the science of birds. If you'd like to know what animal we'll be talking about, here's a hint. We'd like to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his track Adventuring off of his album B-Sides as our theme music. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye.